0: Welcome to the band the Bra episode of Slate Money, our guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios here with Stacey Marie Ishmael of Bloomberg. Hello. And I'm here with Emily Peck of Fundrise. Hello. And we are going to talk about bras, T-shirts, jeans, and all other forms of fast fashion. They are bad for the environment. They involve all manner of Labor abuse, but they are still as popular as ever. Emily, you have found an amazing Chinese company that has taken over this space with astonishing speed and effectiveness. You discovered it. Well, rest of the world discovered it. We're just going to read the internet. We are going to talk about Omicron and CEOs and the amount of psychic stress involved in living through yet another wave of COVID and what that means for the economy. We are going to talk about Reddit. Which is going public and what we think of it as a social network. We are going to have a Slate Plus segment on IP infringement and HR block. It's all coming up on Slate Money.
1: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe.
0: Stacy, you have now officially given up on going into the office for the rest of the year. You are not the only white-collar professional to do that.
2: Uh yeah, that is that is correct. I have been keeping an I mean, it's gotten to the point where when at least one person per group text <laughs> is like, "Oh yeah, I have COVID." I'm like, "Okay, no. <laughs> this is this is this is way too close to home. It is absolutely too many people that I know." And you know, the good news is and, and I was saying this, you know, in a conversation earlier, pretty much, I don't know if this is good news or bad news, but everybody I know who has gotten COVID has been vaccinated. A handful of them have been boosted. And so everyone's symptoms are comparatively very mild. And I'm not as terrified as I would have been if we were having this conversation, you know, last December, that there was about to be a wave of hospitalizations and deaths in my friend group. But it's still not a convenient or ideal thing to be facing the possibility of infecting other people or long COVID. So I'm just like, I'm working from home.
0: One of the things that strikes me about this wave is that it's the first wave, I think, to really hit the you know college-educated professional crowd. Um, it's not that it isn't hitting everyone, it obviously is, but the previous waves had this kind of class dynamic to them, and that, like, um, poorer folks, people of color, generally frontline got workers, hit worse.
2: Retail workers, frontline
0: workers. This one, it's like, you know, it, it's it's hitting the media classes, it's hitting the professionals, um, and I don't know. What the implication of that is, or whether there's any implication of that. Do you think that makes a difference in some way?
2: It depends on who you're talking about, and whether it makes a difference to. Um, I think one of the implications is that the media class was all out having dinners and <laughs> and holiday <laughs> parties. Um, but I do think that it. I remember in the first wave of COVID when it was like, oh, I don't know any Black people, so I don't know anybody who has it. Or I don't know any Hispanic or Latino people, so I don't know anybody who has it. And having a conversation with various employers about the fact that, look, you can't take it for granted that this isn't going to affect anybody on your teams just because you don't personally know who is being hit by this. And I do think, to your point, Felix, now that it's, you know, the families of the CEO Or the very senior management team that some of the conversations about everybody needs to return to the office might now, right now at this very second, might take on a slightly different tenor. We did want to get into that too. Just the um, this notion of a return to
3: office date is is over. It's twenty. It's almost twenty twenty two now. The
0: dates. I mean, there, there was one right. It happened in like September, and now and now we've gone back. I think everyone kind of expects that this wave will peak and fall fall, just like all other waves. It's like we've seen this movie before. We haven't seen this exact movie. It is entirely possible that the number of cases will be higher in this wave than any of the previous waves. Um, But at least what we're not doing is staring down this kind of exponential rise like we were in March 2020 without any ability to foresee it getting better rather than worse we do know this will somehow get better we just don't know like when or how bad it's going to get and the big question is what happens when you multiply two numbers right the first number is how much worse is omicron in terms of number of cases um, compared to previous waves and then the second one is like How much better is Omicron in terms of being, um, you know, much less likely to wind up in hospital than previous waves? And if you multiply those two numbers, you basically wind up getting the effect on hospitalizations and deaths. And most of the people I know who are multiplying those two numbers are saying, yeah, it's less severe, but the number of cases is so much higher that the number of hospitalizations and deaths is going to be like a really big peak on a par with um, previous waves for sure
3: especially in places where people aren't vaccinated exactly and boosted, exactly which is still
2: a significant portion of the, of the u.s country. population I mean my favorite slash not favorite most depressing um pandemic chronicler Eddie young um came out you know what when he's like dropping a big Atlantic piece you know things are about to be really bad again <laughs> he's like my, like my reverse happiness indicator um but you know one of the things he was talking about is we keep forgetting, that hospitalizations are bad for the people who are in hospital with COVID and for the people who are in hospital with other things, right? And it's the it's a, such a stressor on the ability of doctors and nurses to provide care, that if you are in hospital for any reason right now, COVID or otherwise, your standard of care isn't going to be anything comparable to what it would have been in 2019.
0: One of the things I'm hearing from new zealand is that you know they are pushing back their reopening dates and recalibrating on a sort of daily basis for precisely this reason that they don't have a huge amount of hospital capacity and they want to be able to keep the hospital capacity for things like that aren't covid but the minute that you start allowing covid into the country and it's the minute it starts taking off then all of the hospitals deteriorate in quality and and it's not a question always of running out of beds or anything like that. It's just a question of, you know, people getting exhausted and and limited resources. And healthcare in general has clearly deteriorated as a result of COVID. And it's going to get worse as a result of Omicron.
3: Yeah, the, exactly what you said, Felix, like at the beginning in March 2020, it was like, there's going to be a, a shortage of ventilators, a shortage of beds, et cetera. Now it's like, there's gonna be a shortage of nurses, the doctors are too tired. Like, it's it's a human issue. There's just not enough labor anymore to deal with these waves.
0: So bringing this back to like the corporate world, if you're a CEO, and you know that Omicron is spreading among, you know, the professional classes, if you know that if they do get and end up in the hospital the care they're going to get is going to be subpar not so great um does you know that you can see how that affects your calculus in terms of you know turning around to your employees and say well never mind any of that you have to come into the office anyway
3: yeah and you see some ceos now going back i think the most hope high profile one was james gorman at morgan stanley Saying like literally saying I was wrong <laughs> about return to office, um, and admitting like he doesn't know when things will be okay, and probably people should work from home. Like
2: the the, the most certain people are uncertain now. Exactly, and it, and it's not just the the thing that is hard about all of this. There are so many things that are hard. Let's let's be real clear. And I'm about to, I'm about to make a statement that is very much for the privileged white collar work from home classes is. The uncertainty of when you go back and when you don't go back kind of compounds with every additional quarter, right? You're like, do I buy this house in this new place that I live now and the expectation that I have another year of not going back to the office? Do I put my kid in this school? Do I put my kid in that school? You know, do I like extend this lease or try to, you know, I'm having to be moving back and forth? And it's just the the, the, the decision-making toll that people are faced with, you know, because I feel like CEOs are like, our lives are so hard, yes, yes, yes. But also, <laughs> then, you know, your employees who are trying to figure out what they should be doing, where they should be doing it from, and for how long. Like, that is just such an intense driver of uncertainty right now. And I I really think that we have insufficiently accounted for, you know, just the pure productivity cost of having a bunch of people having to spend a bunch of time doing the calculus of where can I get a rapid test? Do, am I going to have to queue up for all of these things? You know, is the return to office February 22 for real, for real? Or are we looking at more like April? Like what's going on here?
3: Yeah, I was just speaking to someone who um, he moved to away um, back home to take care of a sick parent because he was able to because the work, his office was allowing people to work remotely, but wasn't ever saying was kept saying, like, you're going to have to come back at some point. And at this point, this guy is kind of settled. And he's like, you know what? I'm just going to find another job. I, I don't want to work at a place that's like, you're going to have to come back at some point, but we don't know what point. Like, that's just, you can't have a life like that after a while.
0: Stacy, what do you think the economic implications are of what you just said? I feel like Jay Powell came out this week at his press conference saying when when he was asked, like, are you worried about effect of omicron on the economy and he basically said no um the, the stock market seems to be doing fine the bond market seems to be sanguine about the whole thing like clearly there are effects on the economy you know a bunch of restaurant reservations are being cancelled you know the, the as you say there's a productivity hit in terms of people just worrying about covid rather than doing their jobs but is this just going to be another case of each successive wave of COVID has a smaller economic effect than the last, even if the wave itself is big?
2: I think that would be truer if we were better at investing in resiliency. And you know, one of, when I was in a position where I had to make a lot of these kinds of decisions all the time, and you would sort of wake up every day and be like, okay, here's the plan. And then COVID would be like, haha, you thought. Um, You know, kind of a big thing that I tried to adopt and that I tried to kind of inculcate in my team was we cannot make fragile plans, right? We cannot design a return to office plan or a get equipment to people plan that relies on everything going perfectly and to a certain kind of schedule, and we are now in the second time, the first was that glorious summer, right Every right after everybody got vaccinated, we were like, hey, everything's great. And, and I think the, you know, and then again, this summer, we were like, boosters are here, Delta is over, where we acted as if, okay, great, we can now just go back to the original thing that we wanted to do, which was get everybody back into these offices, not have a conversation about really designing for flexibility, kind of not really engage with the people who are asking questions about, you know, can we really think about restructuring how we do these jobs so that people who do not have to be in a single physical place don't just have like a wink, wink, nod, nod ability to not be in that physical place, but an actual understanding. And, you know, sometimes hope gets in the way of progress, right? And I and I think that's what we're seeing here right now, where because we, the managerial class, are trying really hard to be hopeful in the face of uncertainty. It limits the willingness and the ability to say things like, "Okay, we're just going to have to structure this as if we might never come back."
0: Do Jay Powell and the markets have it wrong? Like there is going to be like this long-term drag on productivity and the economy from everyone just having to be way more redundant and careful than people are expecting and hoping?
2: I think we, when folks were like, oh, the great resignation, quits rate, burnout crisis, et cetera, et cetera, I think six months from now it's going to be worse, right? Because I think that, every time you give someone like the fresh feeling that it's going to be okay and then you rip that away from them, the the ability to recover is reduced. And I was just reading a piece in Eater magazine about a restaurant, like one of my former favorite restaurants in Queens that that just closed down. And the author made this excellent point of like, I thought that they, because they survived the past two years, they were going to be okay. Um, And sort of used the analogy of sort of tip of the iceberg versus what was really happening beneath the surface. And I still think from a, like a people psychology level, we have not yet reached th- how bad it's going to get for, like, the people who have been dealing with this for years and years versus what the market is pricing in right now.
0: <laughs> there you go. That, that's, that's a nice, happy um, note to start talking about fast fashion. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. Woo. Okay. I have a special announcement for all of you. Today, Slate is having a holiday sale because that's what you do. For a limited time, we're offering our annual Slate Plus membership at $25 off for your first year. That's a really, really good deal. You can think of your Slate Plus membership kind of like how you pay $10 or $15 for your Spotify or your Netflix. Slate Plus is way cheaper. For less than $4 a month, you get member-exclusive episodes and segments. From us and other shows like Slow Burn, which is really good this season. You guys should listen. Amicus, Political Gab Fest. You should get Slate Plus just to hear the Political Gab Fest recent plus segment on who interrupts who on that show because it was extremely surprising. And I wish someone would do that for Slate money. You also get no ads on any podcast and unlimited reading on the Slate site, which is very important. And best of all, of course, you'll be supporting our show and Slate's journalism. So sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com MoneyPlus. Again, we're giving you $25 off your first year as a member through December 29th. So sign up now at slate.com slash Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
1: This episode is brought to you by Sachs.com. At Sachs.com, it's easy to find your new vibe Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com.
0: Do you have any good news, Emily? Do you have any good news for us on the first fashion front or is that just bad news to you?
3: Look, it depends on your perspective, Felix. <laughs> it's good news, certainly, for the Chinese company Shine. I guess that's how we're pronouncing it. Fine. Um, it started out its life as Shein, and it's basically taken over the fast fashion world, dethroning H&M and Zara as the the most popular fast fashion site, the most popular fast fashion app. Um, and I wanted to talk about it because there's this great story in Rest of Worlds that really kind of dives into how Shine works and it works differently from those other fast fashion retailers in the way it um, makes clothes and in the way it sells clothes. That's pretty interesting. Um, and so the reason why it could be a good story or a bad story is a good story, I guess, because its sales are up 250% from last year. It's a bad story because um, part of the way Shine is able to be so fast and nimble is because you know it overworks factory workers in in China and all of this and and landfills are filling up around the globe with these clothes that people wear like a couple of times and then throw away.
0: When when an item of clothing costs less than it costs to dry clean it, that's a, a bad sign. Yeah,
2: yeah. If you if you're buying jeans for five dollars. Someone is getting exploited really hard in some or multiple parts of that supply chain.
0: I have spent a bunch of time talking to the relatively small but genuinely heartfelt group of people who concentrate on the S in ESG. Everyone mostly just concentrates on the E and carbon emissions and that kind of thing. But the S is precisely this. And... I do know ESG investors who care about the S, which is a minority of them, who basically say they can never invest in or lend to any kind of fast fashion company um, because it's just inherently a terrible industry from a you know labor market and various other, and, and environmental perspective. Um, and it does seem that Shine is... You know, in a terrible industry, it is it is bad even by a terrible industry standards.
3: But it's very innovative and interesting, despite that, I will say. <laughs> this is, this is um, not how I
2: expected this, like, Emily-Felix exchange to go. Like, I feel like y'all are in the I wrong sides of this argument.
3: <laughs> well, it was, it was just interesting to me because um, the story uh, uh, talks about this, this woman who bought a vest in a thrift store that was like cute and Argyle and short. And she posted an image of herself in the vest to social media and blah, blah, blah. Shine saw the image and created the vest. And then the vest goes viral and all these different fast fashion sites are selling her vest and it's just so interesting how fashion has kind of and fast fashion has evolved to the social media era where as like H&M and Zara used to be accused of ripping off the big you know designers and big fashion houses and now it's like these companies are are ripping off a vest that some you know young woman bought at a thrift store to the point where they were using her image the social media picture of her wearing the vest to sell their own vests. I just thought that was crazy.
0: What I love about that story in particular is that the kind of original IP of the vest, if you will, in here is not in the manufacturer of the vest, but in the influencer Mm -hmm. who first put it on Instagram.
3: A curation, and like, if you like, and,
0: ev- and everyone's like, it doesn't actually matter who made the vest. It doesn't actually matter what the label is in the vest. Like the company that made the vest, like they may or may not have their IP being ripped off, but the person who's really responsible for like this vest being cool is the influencer, and they are the person who who set this whole snowball in motion. And I'm like, wow.
3: And the other thing I found innovative was how shine. And the way it works kind of developed out of what Amazon had been doing with retailers in China who were making stuff for Amazon specifically. And that kind of changed the relationship between Chinese manufacturers and and US like platforms and websites who at some point, and I might botch this, but at some point, Shine was like, well, we can just outsource to these little manufacturers ourselves and create a cool layer on top of that to sell the clothes we don't need amazon but they they have like very advanced technology that lets these manufacturers know how different items are doing and what needs to be produced and when and blah 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 and it's all very to the minute um and i just found that all really interesting like amazon somehow in part created this like fast fashion like monster basically unintentionally
0: it, it does feel a little bit like the Uber model. If we're going to be the platform and everyone's just going to sort of compete with each other to try and make money on the platform. Only in this case, it's small Chinese manufacturing shops competing with each other to make money on the Shine platform. Um, which
2: And when we say money, we mean like to sell $5
0: vests. <laughs> The, the, exactly which is which is obviously a way of creating some kind of assets deniability when it comes to labor conditions
3: yeah oh and the labor conditions part was i'm not going to say innovative again because obviously it's not great um <laughs> but, but <laughs> their innovative labor conditions in was like the sh- the people making the the shine clothes aren't underpaid necessarily, like they're paid on time. So that's apparently very important and good, obviously, and isn't common. They're paid on time. Um, and they're working it's the hours that they're working that makes the conditions so terrible. Seventy five hours a week. Fifty Yeah. It's not uncommon to work a shift from like six PM to eight AM or something insane like that and walk miles every day. Everyone was complaining about the kilometers walked. And unlike you two, I have no idea what that means, but it sounded like a lot of walking (laughs)
0: emily's like i don't speak (laughs) kilometers metric
3: i don't but um yeah so i I was kind of surprised by that the the, the piece didn't focus on low pay as so much as just like overwork and every it said every um every garment worker in china is already working overtime like there's no such thing as not working overtime
0: one of my good friends is in the garment industry and has always for at least a few years now but probably I would say a decade, considered China to be the place where you go to get your highest end clothes. Maybe maybe, maybe not like the super, super high, like couture level $10,000 clothes, but if you're selling like a $900 piece of like incredibly sophisticated clothing, which needs very great exact sewing, then you go to China. If you're creating commodity product, you don't, you haven't historically gone to China. You've gone to Bangladesh or, you know, maybe Nicaragua or Honduras or something like that. And it's very interesting to me to see this sort of very low price commodity product coming out of China in this particular instance.
2: I want to go back to the IP points in addition to the labor points, because there is also the IP and the labor of the people who design clothes. Right. And Shine and various other companies, including massive U.S. listed retailers, have in the past three years received a lot of more attention than necessarily lawsuits because the folks suing them can't afford the lawyers around the fact that they will see a design on the Internet that someone has made for their little Etsy store or, you know, just for their personal use on the Instagram. And then it suddenly is selling in these places again for like five or seven dollars. And those designers and those artists and those printmakers really have no recourse. And what it's also done is it set up this expectation that this thing that personally costs them, you know, hundreds of hours of expertise and materials to make, to sell on their Etsy or wherever, they have people emailing them be like, why should I pay you $80 for this hand-knit scarf when I can buy the same thing at a fast fashion retailer for seven?
3: I think people are aware too of the, of the, costs of cheap clothes like you can get from from shine like i I think everyone's aware that like you said before if you're paying five dollars for a pair of jeans i don't think that's true you don't you don't think people are all aware of that i i I, no i I, I don't
0: (laughs) think people are that aware
3: really yeah i
0: i think i think i think we have seen company after company we've seen it with h&m and sorrow we've seen it with forever 21 we're seeing it with shine we like it, this is an, a story which is decades old, which is that you slap a cool and trendy brand on clothes and make them cheap and people get into it and they are not belly aching about ethics.
3: Huh. I was just visiting friends, aff- relatively affluent, and they were like, we don't know where to buy clothes anymore because everywhere is... Is evil good <laughs> or exploits it's people? Like, and but, I was like, "This okay, is actually great. this is
0: a real a real issue. Is that there is no way of telling For if you're looking at an ad on Instagram, right? It, which is basically some kind of a Shopify thing, right? And it's like handmade Italian shoes or beautifully handcrafted cashmere scarves or whatever it is. Now anyone can write that copy." And you can press the buy button and wind up getting drop shipped something from China, which is, like, exploitative. And it's really, really hard to be able to tell what's real and what's fake. And, you know, I was having a conversation this week with a friend of mine who runs an olive oil company. And, like, it's exactly the same as the problem with olive oil. It's basically impossible if you're looking at a supermarket shelf you know that probably more than half of the olive oil which claims to be extra virgin is not, in fact, extra virgin. But you just have no way of telling which half or you know, which one is real and which one is fake. And I think we have reached that point now in fashion, in a world where everything gets bought on the internet and anyone can make a website look like anything, it becomes unbelievably difficult to be able to work out where the ethical consumer can show up.
3: Or the non-affluent consumer, because yes, I, you-
0: especially the non-affluent consumer, right? Because if you're, yeah, exactly. If if you're going to, you know, Louis Vuitton, it's probably they're uh, treating their workers okay, but not everyone can spend that kind of money on clothes.
2: There's a, a woman who um named Cora Harrington, who on social, you know, goes by the sort of the the nom de plume, the lingerie addict, and one of the things that I have really learned from harrington over time is the to echo to a felix's points how hard it is to know the provenance of something and two how much more expensive everything actually is than you might think and three that so much of this conversation about affordability uh, ignores what we used to do in the past which is we had way less stuff we took better care of it And we insourced the labor of making it to like women in households, right? Where it's like, you know, because the people who were patching and darning and sewing and buying um, patterns from McCall's were kind of absorbing costs onto themselves that we now outsource to the laborers in countries that we buy a lot of this from. And I remember being fascinated, sort of an an archeological... an architectural historian weighed in and was like, yeah, back in the day, closet space was not a thing. <laughs> you know, if you, if you look at houses that were built, you know, from the 40s, 50s, you had a tiny little nook where you would hang some clothes in, and that was the totality of your wardrobe. And now everyone's like, I need three walk-in closets for my abundance of fast fashion accoutrement.
3: That's a really good point. You get an old apartment has no closets in New York City has always been a frustration.
0: Exactly. No, but that's why. But uh, apropos lingerie, the, the one exception to this rule, the one thing that no one has ever been able to do is make cheap bras. Right. Bras are unbelievably <laughs> difficult to make. They have like hundreds of different places. Sewing them is unbelievably expert and difficult. And there's just no shortcut.
2: Yep. I did not know that. Yep. And even yeah. sports bras? Ish. Um, it's one of the reasons that sports bras are notoriously difficult. If you're either of like, I'm not, I'm not going to finish the sentence. Um, (laughs) 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 sports bras are, are less complicated, but only within certain body types. Um, Right. And and like lace Felix is another example, right? You know, like one of the questions that Cora often has people asking her on Twitter is like, well, why can't we just build robots that do patterns? And she's like, robots are just not smart enough to recreate what a really skilled sewist can do with incredibly delicate materials and tiny, tiny, tiny stitches.
3: So interesting that shine yet another example of how technological innovation has all these we- unintended consequences from the IP of fashion designers being undervalued to workers, you know, walking many kilometers a day to us talking about bras. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you really get everything but, on but the it, it, is,
0: it is also very interesting the way in which, like, you know, we are probably going to have... We already have computers that are better than any human at chess. We are going to have full self-driving cars and all of the artificial intelligence that goes into them before we have a robot that can make a bra? (laughs)
2: Yeah. Maybe the
3: answer is to ban the bra.
2: (laughs) 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 Incredible. Incredible segue. I don't know where we go from. (laughs) The only place that we can Um, go, we have to go to Reddit. (laughs) Subreddit. Yeah, we have to go to the (laughs) Subreddit.
4: but there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets.
0: I have never had any occasion to go into the bra shop subreddit, but if I wanted to learn everything there was to know about like where to find a decent bra... Um, Stacey, that would obviously be the place to go, right? I mean,
2: there is there is genuinely a subreddit for everything. And just as a note, if anybody is thinking about going to the Bra subreddit, it is flagged as adult content. So do not do that from your work computer, please. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: Reddit is going public. This is the news hook. Um, there was a Reuters story saying they're hoping for a $15 billion valuation Um, who knows it's not going to happen until 2022. We'll see how much it goes for. But it looks like it's going to be kind of the baby social network. It's going to be worth less than Twitter, a lot less than Snap, and, like, not even close to Meta. But it kind of punches a... It's above its weight in some ways, Reddit. Um, Stacy, wouldn't you say? I
2: completely agree. I mean, um, as a person who's been on Reddit for longer than it's probably appropriate to admit, I think that... I remember when they were first sold to Condé Nast um, and then spun out that...
0: For the amazing sum of $10 million. Condé bought the entire company pretend, for $10 like,
4: million. What a steal.
2: Like, shout out to their MA person, but un-shout out to them for selling them out, for spinning them out later um, prior to this to this IPO. Um, and one of the attractions of Reddit has always been that it seems to be one of the only places on the internet where you can find mass, mostly moderated conversations about pretty much everything in one place, in kind of multiple languages, multiple geographies, multiple points of view, um, and that has kind of scaled over time in a way that other, I would say even like a hacker news or you know some of some Stack oh Overflow, my gosh, stack, stack Overflow, um, or some of these other boards like have not sustained that kind of momentum because like a Hacker News and a Stack Overflow are very very domain specific, and Reddit is this kind of sprawling. You know, it's like our skincare addiction <laughs> to you know our cryptocurrency and everything and everything in between.
3: And Stacy, I'm not really on Reddit very much. Um, As compared to other social media networks, I feel like for a while we heard about toxicity on Reddit a lot. I mean, it's there. I don't hear about that anymore. Did
2: they figure something out? Uh, Well, they banned some of the biggest subreddits and they were like, "Okay, that's too toxic when you're in The Wall Street Journal and The New York Times and The Washington Post regularly talking about these particular boards as being bad places. But look, I mean, the... Has Reddit has served as a kind of certain parts of Reddit have served as a kind of 4chan light um, for a long, long time, right? I and mean, if we if we think back to that particularly awful time in history when this the iCloud accounts of various celebrities got hacked and you know their their intimate photos were all over the internet. Like Reddit was one of the primary distributors um, of a lot of that um imagery. And it has taken, I think, multiple rounds of CEOs to get to a point where they will even acknowledge or they have started to acknowledge that there is a problem on a lot of these boards and that there are stricter measures that are... That need to happen. Interestingly, a lot of that willingness came from around the time when they started to want to monetize through advertising. <laughs> so you know, the, the need to kind of clean up um, certainly had a, a, a useful selling point attached to it.
0: The economics of Reddit have always been fascinating to me. I remember when I was at Condé um, in like two thousand eight, two thousand nine. It was so famously neglected that they wound up having to sort of go begging to their users and say, like, give us money for this ridiculous thing called Reddit Gold. Oh, man. Reddit Gold. Because 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 there was they, they just couldn't keep the lights on, basically. Um, and then and then they realized it was much easier to just persuade Conde to sell off, you know, small little chunks of it piecemeal to venture capitalists at ever spiraling valuations. Um and they seem to have been doing quite a good job of like living off of VC funding for a while. Um, but historically, the the big fight was like, who's going to win? Is it going to be Reddit or Dig? And we know who won that one. What, what, what was the difference between Reddit and Dig? And why did Reddit win and Dig lose?
2: Oh, you know, you make me think about Dig, which I haven't done in such a long time. Um, <laughs> um, which I think so, you know, I think Dig attached itself too much to media people. I, I do genuinely feel like the people who loved Dig the most were, are also the people that if you want to like go semi-viral on Twitter, you just be like, oh, let's think about Google Reader. Or, you know, it's like <laughs> it's like a certain... Relatively small, mostly nostalgic elder millennials and Gen Xers, for whom there was this perfect sanctified vision of the internet, organized by what was most interesting, as decided mostly by us. Um, Because Dig had this element of editorial curation, light touch, but still, but still there in a way that Reddit has mostly rejected, um, or at least the moderators of Reddit, the all-powerful people who really control these individual boards, have rejected over time.
0: So what you have is is a series of communities that Reddit really has become uh, a place to participate. It's probably, I mean, it's much more participatory than, say, TikTok, which is worth, I don't know, 30 times as much um, you know that the TikTok is overwhelmingly a place to lurk and to consume and it's your broadcasting
2: or you're consuming exactly
0: yeah there's like a tiny number of broadcasters and a large number of consumers exactly um where uh, and whereas like facebook i don't know like people are producing and consuming on, on a more sort of even level and i think i would i would put or even Instagram for that matter. And I would put Reddit on that. Like, obviously you have big name posters, like, um, what, what, what's his name? um, d- deep fucking value. Um, the, the guy oh, from Wall Street Oh, Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mister,
2: yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> um, but like, but, but it does seem to be much more of a, like the only way you really get value out of Reddit is by jumping in and actually posting and engaging.
2: Yeah. And, you know, and one of the other things I have always appreciated about Reddit is that it does not care about identity in a way that was very interesting. And that was kind of the opposite of like a place like Facebook, which has always had this explicit premium on real name plus photograph of you. Right. And like your Reddit identity could exist in a silo of just Reddit um, with kind of associated political and social capital but you know and and it was so unusual to know who someone was that every now and then certain subreddits would have a you know post a picture of yourself and everybody be like oh my god I didn't know you were a person (laughs) like Mm -hmm. like the surprise was just like genuine um at seeing people and kind of experiencing them in um in different contexts which is again one of the reasons that makes it so hard to stamp out toxicity because of like that element of um difficulty of tying things back to real-world consequences. But banning somebody from Reddit, if, like, if somebody is really invested in the ecosystem, banning them from Reddit is actually a big deal because you are kicking them out of not just one club, but multiple clubs at once, right? Because, you know, people are often members of multiple subreddits and have spent time cultivating their mini networks within, within those things.
3: How, um, how will going public or will going public affect Reddit's culture or, you know, how will it affect Reddit? It's relatively small compared to some of these other, I think Felix pointed out in his newsletter, it has a relatively small valuation compared to the other big social networks. Will going public change the way it is in some way?
2: You know, I think Reddit has gone through, you know, to Felix's point, they were like independent, started off small, a couple of co-founders, some of whom still post regularly to... Corporate owned to weird in between kind of private equity ish situation to now like a potentially a medium sized publicly traded company and they've been fairly even keel at least from the the user experience of it throughout. I mean, I think the CEO upheavals, you know, there's been. There was like an Ellen Powell era compared to sort of like the the Ohanian Spez era. Um, that has made a lot more difference in the kind of the material experience of what it's like to be a Redditor than whoever owned them at the time.
0: Do you think they have the potential to become a meme stock? <laughs> Everyone does, right? Well,
2: you know, hilariously, um, their Hoffman, Steve Hoffman, who's currently their chief executive, is explicitly making a pitch to... Individual investors, right? He he's saying that like we want individual investors to participate. We want the Reddit community and the the OG redditors to really have this participatory experience. He even like highlighted, you know, like you could buy our shares on Robinhood, like once we go once we go public. So it's certainly something they're trying to talk up.
0: If they find a way to get outsized allocations to people with lots of Points on Wall Street bets. Who knows how this could end out? So let's talk about numbers. Do you have a number for the numbers around Stacey? I do,
2: and it's depressing.
0: <laughs> it's oh, just, just warning Not more advance. depressing from Stacey. Oh yeah, yeah.
2: This is just kind of that. It's nineteen percent. Um, I I I started my day with this absolutely horrifying uh, story from my my a pair of Bloomberg colleagues that having a prior COVID infection probably only offers nineteen percent protection against the current variant according to a study that just came out from imperial college in
0: london you went through all of that crap from getting <laughs> covid and you don't even get more than yeah. 19 19 so I'm, immunity like, but like, you deserve more immunity
2: yeah. i'm like i dealt with right. this nonsense before um but you know it's like hey what can you do but if you get a booster right so if you I have either been vaccinated and boosted or you've had covid before and are vaccinated then you get up to like you know a much higher rate of protection against infection so again just like get boosted please
0: although everybody. it is it is very hard to me- no like one of the things which no one knows is the degree to which being boosted helps prevent you getting infected right. at all as opposed to symptomatic or the only thing we can the only thing we can really measure is the degree to which being boosted reduces your chance of you know having to go to hospital w- once you are infected so yeah there's still like so much we have no idea about um i'm gonna have another interesting mildly depressing well, maybe not depressing number 105 million dollars which is the amount of money that steve easterbrook has had to give back to mcdonald's
3: that was almost my number
0: that was almost Emily's number. Uh, Steve Easterbrook, the former McDonald's CEO who was fired for having an affair with a subordinate, um, he was not fired for cause, but McDonald's reserved the right to claw back various equity awards and bonuses if they found out that his behavior was particularly egregious. They then did a bunch of investigations and they found out that his, his behavior was Particularly (laughs) egregious that I think he had more than one affair with a subordinate. He was sending nude photos from his work email. And of course, as we all know, the thing that he really did wrong was he lied about all of this to the investigators. Um, So um, they tried to claw back a bunch of his pay and he said he was going to fight them in court and they all lawyered up. And then suddenly he settled for $105 million.
2: So was that his whole bonus? Like what percentage of his comp was that?
0: That's a pretty large chunk of his comp. I mean, like, it and, and plus, like, this is the other thing which was kind of interesting. They gave him like forty million dollars worth of McDonald's shares, mm. or he had that those vested when he left, and presumably he didn't just hold on to them all in McDonald's shares. But then, what they've asked for, what they've asked for back, is like the value of those shares today. So if he sold those (laughs) shares, it all depends on like, did he invest that money in something that outperformed McDonald's stock or underperformed McDonald's stock?
2: Yikes, yeah, don't lie to investigators. That's good news, (laughs) not depressing.
0: (laughs) That's not, there, there you go.
3: I mean, usually corporate investigations into sexual misconduct go very much nowhere. So this is actually quite unusual. And I say, positive news.
0: Positive news. And he can Emily, what's your number? McDonald's.
3: Um, my and number
0: he, <laughs> <laughs> Or maybe, maybe that's all he can afford now. He's just going to have to live on chicken McNuggets for the oh, rest of his life.
3: A bitter meal. It's a bitter pill to swallow. My number is. <laughs> oh, I have two. I'll guess I'll go with the newsier one and hope I don't regret it. Um, it's five hundred million dollars. That is the amount that Bruce Springsteen got for selling his entire music catalog to Sony. Um, and it's believed to be the highest amount ever gotten for a music catalog. This is the new trend to emerge out of the pandemic in the music industry. Artists who couldn't make money from concerts started selling like their intellectual property to make money. Um, and apparently those deals are intensifying as the year comes to an end because it's cheaper to pay taxes on um, a big windfall, cash windfall from selling your IP than it is to pay taxes on your... Royalty stream, and there's all new players in the market buying up IP rights from musicians. Stevie Nicks sold her catalog. Bob Dylan sold his for like 300 or 400 million. It's not clear how much. Um, so, this is like the big thing in the industry right, right. now. There's tons of these deals happening.
0: I, lo- I love this story. It's a super interesting story. Um, a couple of things going on. I, I had a piece in my newsletter this week about the rise of insider s- stock sales. Um, which is 162 billion dollars this year alone which is like a massive like unprecedented level and one of the main reasons why insiders have been selling a lot of stock this year is because they are all kind of convinced that the capital gains rate is going to go up Um, long-term capital the gains is going to go up so you want to Get lock in those gains now, rather than when the capital gains rate is higher. That's part of what's going on. And then the other part of what's going on is, you know, if you look at Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan, Stevie Nicks, they are, let's just say, at the estate planning point of their lives, they have more than enough money to live on for the rest of their lives. That's not a problem. But they're trying to work out how do I preserve the value you know for my heirs or wherever else you know is going to wind up inheriting my estate and again for estate planning purposes it kind of makes sense to do it now rather than to wait for you know the new tax regime which everyone is kind of expecting um but yeah and then the third thing that's happened is like these are um annuities right like these things we these, these songs are old enough now bob dylan's songs stevie nicks songs bruce Springsteen's songs are old enough now that there is we have like decades of data um of how much revenue they have generated year in and year out that everyone who expected them to be you know hits that died away were wrong and in fact in many of these cases the revenues are going up rather than down over time and so if you look at these as a pretty steady income stream which is not going down anytime soon in a low interest rate environment you can easily see why someone like sony who bought the springsteen catalog are happy to pay 30 times revenues for a catalog because like as a you know on a P level basis it's not so bad if the if the revenues are going up rather than down
3: also really interesting to me because i remember a long time ago when michael jackson bought the beatles catalog and it was like the biggest news story ever like i saw it everywhere and this bruce springsteen story biggest deal ever half a billion dollars for his music like the boss doesn't have his music anymore like no one cares <laughs> it's interesting how things have changed i don't know
0: yeah, although although I feel like like didn't didn't Michael Jackson and Paul McCartney have a massive falling out over that? That the, in this That's case it's very much it's <laughs> it's a decision it's a decision by, Springsteen to sell. Like it's very much a consensual thing. Whereas I think like a, some if not all of the Beatles were very upset that um, Michael Jackson had managed to buy that rights. Okay, I think that's it for us this week. We're going to have a Slate Plus on Block vs. Block, the trademark fight of the century. We're going to have Emily Peck weigh in on that one. And other than that, thanks for listening. Thanks to Shana Roth for producing, and we will be back next week with another Slate Money.